What we're getting into tonight and what we've been doing Sunday nights is deep theology. Things that possibly most believers, I might be wrong here, but most believers don't really know these things very, very well. They know hints of them. It's the kind of thing where if you ask them to explain it, they can't. But if you explain it, they go, yeah, 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 that. <laughs> so what we're doing is we're doing deep theology, deep into the essentials. So instead of knowing sort of a, a wide variety of things very, in a very shallow sense, we're grabbing a piece of essential Christian theology and we're going deep into it to understand it really well. And when you have the deep understanding, you're totally protected from error because you, you know the what and the why. So here we are, Romans 3, this is, this is giving us this deep understanding. There is the kindergarten level of understanding. And Christians start there. You know, I just know Jesus loves me. And you never, you never leave that place, but you do go deeper. You do go into much greater detail and understanding. And that's where we're at. So um, for the mature believers and the maturing believers, we're in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. It says, but now the righteous, I'm going to read, by the way, I'll read all the way through verse 26, just to give us an overview of the passage. And you'll see how deep this is. Every phrase, every word matters. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is a mouthful. And that is a lot of information. And the interesting thing is, is this is the condensed version of things. What we want to do is go through and kind of understand each phrase, talk about it phrase by phrase, because there's so much thoughtful awesome truth in these passages. So we're going to patiently plod through. We're going to start in verse 21. We're going to take concept by concept and just unpack them and understand them so we can get this book. I'm amazed at how many people will do in their daily reading, will read the Bible, but not actually understand what it is they're reading. Now that's fine. Your first time through the Bible, but that's not fine when you're 20 years a Christian, when you're 30 years a believer, and you still read it and you're like, yeah, I don't know. I need to do what that's talking about. And so that's why, you know, I think God appointed teachers in the church so that we might really get these things and grasp them. Um, although in reality, if you carefully just study these things and read it in context and think about each phrase, you'll probably get as much out of it as what I'm about to give you. So verse 21, it says, now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. What does this mean? Well, it means that uh, we're learning how to attain God's righteousness. Not, not just we're seeing God's righteousness, but we're attaining God's righteousness. You can do it one of two ways. I could do it through the law, by being obedient, being perfectly righteous. I attain to God's righteousness, to God's glory. But we learned in the previous passage that all fall short of the glory of God. So we, we fail in that. But the, the righteousness here is talking about being righteous, not through my works, but through the gospel. So I'm righteous apart from the law. Without obedience to the Old Testament law, without working my way to heaven, I gain God's righteousness. There's a fancy word for this, imputation. 
imputation. It's not how you, the process of becoming an imp. Rather, it's, it's something being bestowed upon you. God gives you his righteousness. Isaiah talks about us being clothed in righteousness. That it's a sort of a gift. God's clothing you in righteousness. Just like Christ took our sins upon himself, he puts his righteousness upon us. So it's God's righteousness through imputation. Romans 1 verses 16 and 17 is connected to this idea. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, notice the phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So he, in his capsule statement that we've been talking about over and over, we keep going back to Romans uh, 1 verses 16 and 17, that there's a righteousness from God and it's given to us by faith. And that's what Paul is now arguing for. So before he tells you how you can be righteous by faith, he tells you how you cannot be righteous through your own good works. Romans 1, 2, and 3. And then now he's beginning to move the subject on how you can be righteous. Righteous apart from the law. Righteous by faith. Then in verse 21, if we continue. So he says, The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now this is an interesting concept, witnessed by the law and the prophets. So if you have ever seen, I've seen car accidents. I've seen a couple. And I've actually stopped and be a witness, unlike some knuckleheads who just, <laughs> just I'm busy. And they keep going. And you're like, wow, it wasn't my fault. But there's no witnesses. But anyway, I've been actually been the witness who stays there. And that means you observed. I didn't do anything. I just observed it. And now I can confirm what happened because I'm a witness. So how does that relate to the righteousness of God being witnessed by the law and the prophets? It's talking here about prophecy. Here about fulfillment. It's talking here about the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, telling us that this gospel that Paul is preaching is true. Now, you may have heard this phrase, uh, what is in the Old Testament concealed is in the New Testament revealed. And that's true-ish. Because I don't want to say that it's in the Old Testament totally concealed. Like we're clueless about it until you arrive at the New Testament. That's not the case. There is a lot that's revealed in the Old Testament. And so maybe a more accurate, non-rhyming way to put it would be what is in the Old Testament predicted is in the New Testament fulfilled. I mean, that's, that would be probably the non-rhyming, non-cutesy way of putting it. Um, many things are perfectly clear in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament stands in witnesses and says, yep, Jesus, this is the Messiah. Yep, gospel, this is the right message. In John 5.46, Jesus confirmed this. He said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. He, he just claims like almost like it's plain. Like, he wrote about me. Of course he wrote about me. In Hebrews 10, 7, prophesying about Christ, applying this to Jesus, it says, Behold, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. In the volume of the book, in the volume of the scriptures, the Old Testament, it's written of Jesus even in the Old Testament laws and morality, we see a picture of Jesus, who is the only one who ever fulfilled them. The only one who ever walked in obedience to those things that were predicted. In Matthew five seventeen, Jesus said this, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So he's coming and he's going to fulfill. He's going to accomplish the things that are written in the law and the prophets. Now, Jesus isn't the only one who made these claims. Even ancient Jews knew about this stuff. Sometimes we, we as Christians, we're maybe a little bit, um, we're not Jewish enough, you know, and we don't realize that these things are not new. In the Babylonian Talmud, which is 
an extremely authoritative source. Uh, it's, it says um, that all the prophets prophesied all the good things only in respect of the Messianic era. All the prophets prophesied only in respect of the Messianic era. Again, in the Talmud, it says, none of the prophets prophesied except of the days of the Messiah. So there was, and these are, these are uh, non-Messianic, they're Messianic in a sense of expectation, but they don't think that Jesus was the Messiah. But they recognize that the Old Testament, the overall flow and teaching of the Old Testament is all about Messiah. And here Jesus shows up and goes, yeah, it's all about moi. It's all about me. I'm the one fulfilling it. I'm the one doing it. So the, the law and prophets are witnessing of Christ. They're, they're ministering to us about him. So I want to give you a list of a few of the ways that the law and the prophets witness the truth of the gospel um, of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. So one of the ways is in how the Old Testament saints get saved. Paul's going to unpack this more in chapter 4 of Romans. We're going to deal in detail with this. But when you look at the Old Testament saints and you see some of the, some of the chief examples of, of, of faithful Jews like Abraham and David, and they're saved by faith, by grace. You know, Noah found favor, grace in the eyes of the Lord. All these chief examples, and they found grace. It's all saved by faith and grace. Then we see an example of them witnessing that this self-attaining righteousness isn't the way. Rather, it'll be God's grace. Another way is, there's the righteous requirement of the law. When you read the Ten Commandments and you realize like, man, nobody does that. You know, like this is, like we all know what's right, but we don't do it. And then God reveals the Ten Commandments. Well, Christ alone walked in obedience. Think about it this way. The Old Testament stands there for generations and generations and generations saying do, 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 do. But there isn't a doer until Jesus shows up. He comes and he fulfills it. He does. He actually does it so that he can stand in our place as the perfect righteous one. Another way the Old Testament witnesses of Christ, stands in witness of him, is in direct prophecies of Christ. Now, I actually have uh, on YouTube 10 weeks of prophecies. I actually have uh, like three or four videos just on prophecies of Jesus in the Evidence for the Bible series. So you're welcome to go look at those in detail. Um, but there's tons of direct prophecies of Christ. And the, the Jews of Jesus' time knew this. They knew that there was Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. They found even in the Qumran uh, caves, they found, uh, I think it's called 4Q Testimonia, if I remember correctly. And this is actually a document that has a collection of Messianic passages in the Old Testament that they knew were all about the Messiah. Some of which um, we would also agree as Christians go, yep, see that was fulfilled in Jesus. This is, this is like Messianic passages fulfilled in Christ. So we have Genesis 3 talking about the initial statement about this this coming one who would crush the serpent this descendant of eve that would crush the serpent his head psalm 22 detailing the the crucifixion of christ what crucifixion was before it was invented and the details of how he would die and rise and then his name would be proclaimed to the whole world so there'd be a whole world knowing this one messiah's name jesus alone being the one to fulfill that isaiah 53 where it sounds so much like jesus that people upon hearing it think it's from the new testament so, and, uh, and yet we have verification that this was written before Christ through the same Qumran caves. We have Genesis um, 22, in that picture prophecy 
of, of uh, Abraham being told to offer Isaac and then, turn, and then saying that this is a prophecy. In this mount, in the mount of the Lord, it'll be provided. And it was a sim- symbol of Christ. We have Daniel 9 giving us the timeline of Christ's coming before the destruction of the second temple. You've got uh, Psalm 16.10 about the resurrection. Micah 5.2 telling us where the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Malachi 3.1 talking about him having a forerunner and how the Messiah, when he comes, it'll be Yahweh who's coming. I mean, we're talking about a, a Trinitarian uh, verse. And Zechariah 9, 9, Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, Isaiah 7, 14, 9, 6, Proverbs 30, verse 4, Psalm 118, Genesis 49, 10, Psalm 2. I could go on and on and on and on because the Old Testament is packed with direct prophecies of Christ, of this Messiah. But there's more. The Old Testament also has pictures of Messiah. So not only do we see him in the example of how the Old Testament saints got saved, not by law, but by grace, in the righteous requirement of the law that says do, and Jesus is the only doer, in the direct prophecies of Christ, but we also see the witnessing in pictures of Jesus, like Jonah, as, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. We see it in the bronze serpent. We see it in the rock that Moses struck twice. These are stories that don't even make a whole lot of sense until they're applied to Christ. You're like, what is this about? And then Jesus says, well, that's the bronze serpent was lifted up by uh, Moses, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. You know, and all, who what? Just look to the serpent. Look to him. Well, why a serpent? Because he's taking on the curse of our sin. It became sin for us on the cross. Wow. We see it in the pictures of people. Uh, Adam and how Adam and Eve and how she's taken from his side and Christ, he's, he's there on the cross. He's pierced and the church comes out of this. We're born because of his death. You know, and he's put to a sleep, and it's all just symbolic of Jesus Christ. In Jephthah, I love Jephthah. I don't know why people don't talk about Jephthah more often. You're like, who's Jephthah? Well, in the book of Judges, you read about this guy Jephthah, who he's he's considered to be a son of a harlot. So his family and, and the people of his town they chase him away. You're the son of a harlot. You'll have no inheritance with us, and they reject him. But then later, oh, it says then worthless men come together and they band together with him. That's us, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> worthless people gather together with Jephthah and then the people are, are, are suffering, they're having a hardship and they go to Jephthah like, Jephthah, please come deliver us. And he asks them this question. If I come and deliver you, will I really be your Lord? Will I really be your king? And Jesus asks the same thing. He's like, I'll deliver you, but you need to receive me as your king. And so they say, yes, you will. And he comes and he delivers them. And they, they accuse Jesus of being the son of a harlot. They didn't think that virgin birth was real. They chased him out. They rejected him. And the Gentile world gathered together with Christ, just like the worthless men gathered with Jephthah. And there was a day coming, praise God, when the Jews in large numbers, not just the numbers we have now, but much larger numbers, will turn and say, yes, be our king. Be our king. And there'll be great deliverance for Israel uh, at the time. So Jephthah, I love that. I love that story. David is a picture of Messiah in so many ways. Uh, Boaz and Ruth, the temple itself is a picture of the Messiah, of Jesus, in so many ways. Um, you've got uh, the sacrifices, even the sacrifices in Leviticus, you go through them and you patiently look at them and thoughtfully consider them. And you're like, man, these are, these picture Jesus in different ways. And you've got the illusions, like little, 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 just little spots and casual mentions of Christ and of, of pictures of Jesus in these little ways. So what is this, what is this saying? It's saying, Paul is saying, guys, Jesus didn't just show up out of nowhere and say, hey, believe me, I'm a prophet of God like Joseph Smith did, or like Muhammad did, or like 
the other people who claim they are Jesus nowadays. <laughs> There's always somebody, you know. Um, no, 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 no. None of that. Jesus came and stands with a million arrows from the Old Testament all pointing at him saying, he's the one. He is the one. This proves the Old Testament. This proves the New Testament. This proves Jesus. This proves your salvation is legit. And Paul's point is even bigger than that. His point in Romans is not only that the law and the prophets stand a witness about Jesus, but his point as he shares the gospel is that the law and the prophets stand and witness not only Messiah, but about how we get saved by Messiah. About the gospel of grace that's witnessed in the Old Testament. So not only is Jesus predicted, but the gospel of salvation by faith through grace, that is also in the Old Testament. It is not a new New Testament thing. It is simply fulfilled in the new. It is prophesied or predicted in the old. Um, that's why in verse 22, it says, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, then in verse 22, it says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. So that we've got... Um, the righteousness of God being given to us, that was revealed in the Old Testament. When Paul and the other apostles, when they went around in the New Testament times preaching, they didn't have the New Testament. I mean, they were in a sense preaching the New Testament, but they were doing it all based on the Old Testament. And throughout the New, we see it founded and grounded on and in the Old Testament. So we'll continue through this. Um, Paul is going to unpack this more in chapter 4. That all who believe, all who believe, can be saved through grace, through faith, not just Jew, but Gentile as well. And now if I can say this, and this might seem a little out of sorts for our Bible study, but Muslims too. All who believe can be saved. It's just been on my heart recently. I just want to mention this, that there's a lot of people out there who think um, that Muslims are somehow not going to be saved, can't be saved, won't be saved. Not only is that not true because we're seeing it happen all over the world, but it's unchristian to even think such a thing. Name the people who you think can't be saved, and that's where you're not Christian. <laughs> right there. That's the spot. Um, there is a Jonah-like attitude that some people have towards Muslims. How Jonah felt towards Nineveh is how they feel towards Muslims. And uh, Christ would say, oh yeah? Love your enemy. You were my enemy and I loved you. Love your enemy. So it just breaks my heart to hear, to hear that. And that's why we're doing outreach and uh, going to be <clears throat> trying to have an even greater impact in the Islamic communities around us. Because Jesus loves them and wants them to be saved. Then as we keep reading in verse 22... He ends the verse, and it's probably a bad verse break, a bad place to break the verses. I mean, these, these verse numbers were added many years later. I like them. They're convenient, but they're not like divinely inspired. They were just added to make it convenient for us to talk about where we're at in the passage. But here we are at the end of 22. It says, for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's interesting because Paul, his, his, his philosophical argument for, for this, the reason why even the worst person you can imagine, the reason why that person can get saved, Paul says, isn't because they're not as bad as you think. It's because you're just as bad as them. <laughs> That's the reason. So instead of elevating humanity as, hey, we're not that bad. He's like, yeah, you're all horribly terrible. And if any, any of you can get saved, 
then any of you can get saved. You know, it's, that's really his point. It's the opposite of I'm a good person. And the whole idea of I'm a good person completely falls apart when I realize that to truly qualify as a good person, I have to live up to the glory of God. All fall short of the what? The glory of God, it says in verse 23. I didn't fall short of being a decent human. I'm a decent human. It's just sad that decent humans aren't really as decent as we'd like to pretend. It's God's glory that I get measured by when I stand before him in heaven. It's his glory, not my personal opinions about what's right and wrong. I'll stand before God and be judged according to his standards, not mine. You don't get to self-grade when it comes to eternity. There are teachers that experiment with self-grading. They don't really do self-grading because it doesn't work. Because kids, especially the worse the kid is, the more likely they are to just give themselves an A they don't deserve. So what they do is they say, you grade his paper, you grade his paper, you grade his paper. And then, and then maybe they'll even say, grade your own paper. But afterwards, they'll look at it. And, and this is, this is the, the rubric they use. The, I think that's what it's called, rubric, that they use for how they self-grade. They'll say, yeah, grade yourself. And if your grade matches the grade that I give you, then I'll give you extra points. Which is really not the same as grading yourself, is it? I'm just guessing what grade they'll give me. Uh, but really, we grade ourselves much better than we are. And you find any group of people, and they're not so bad. Just ask them. <laughs> just ask them. I'm not so bad. It doesn't matter how bad they are. They're not so bad. I'm not so bad. You know, but, uh, but I always treat my mom good. I always treat my mom good. Yeah, but I only stole from people who could afford it. Okay. All right, you're, you're a great, you're a really good person. Yeah, but I'm loyal to my friends. I'm loyal to my friends. Just don't cross me. Just don't cross me. Okay. All right, go for it. But the problem is I get judged by God's glory and I know I fall short of God's glory. That's why there's a sense of fear upon the idea of standing before him in his presence. So this is why anyone can get saved. It's because you're all dirt bags. <laughs> and if that dirt bag can get saved then anybody can get saved. This is one of the reasons why God chose Paul. It was not because Paul was a great guy. It was because Paul was a horrible guy. He was a terrible example of a human being. He went around persecuting the church, murdering Christians, trying to destroy Christianity. God picked him so we would all know for all time that anybody can receive Christ and get saved. Anybody. Anybody. Praise God. Because we're all losers. Verse 24. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. There's the humility of Christianity right there. And it's a beautiful thing. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we all fall short and therefore we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We fall short in works. We're brought back in grace. We fall short in what we deserve. So we're given what we don't deserve freely. We're justified this phrase justified is a fancy, fancy term. It's very neat. But it basically means I'm made right. I'm declared righteous. Or I like the old worship song that says, justified, just as if I'd never done anything wrong. <laughs> and um, that's an interesting way to put it. I like that. Um, I'm made right. I'm declared righteous. That's what justification is. It's I take your sin away and then I, I make you just. I've made you just. But I haven't been just, like righteous. I haven't been that. But I've made you that because of Christ. That Oh, wow. 
I meet, I literally meet the qualification of God's glory through Jesus. The law stands in witnesses. This is what you need. Jesus says, I will provide what you need. And I will give it to you as a free gift. This, this is a couple things. It's justification. So step one is it takes my sins away. And step two is he gives me his righteousness. I don't know that it really happens in two steps, but it's two different concepts to think about. Gives me his righteousness. He sees his own righteousness in me. So I can, by all rights, enter heaven wholly by the grace of God. I'm actually righteous in his eyes. This is the opposite of condemnation. This is why I can be confident before the Lord. Because I have not performed up to the task of entering his presence. He has performed and gifted it to me. And this is why my, my, my biggest chief thing in heaven is going to be worship. Because I am just grateful for the grace of God. We have a worship song that we sing that says we lift, up, or we lift our holy hands up. And I think this is a really interesting song if you understand theology. And it can be a really stumbling song if you don't. Because you're thinking, we lift our holy hands up. And you're like, am I holy enough to lift my hands as I sing this song? And the answer, of course, is no. You're not. You're not holy. You can't lift, lift my holy hands up. We, you know, I want to praise you. I can't do that. But if I realize the holiness that I possess is the holiness of Christ gifted to me, what I'm saying is, Lord, you've washed me. You've made me clean. You've justified me. I, by grace, lift up holy hands to praise you. And man, that's powerful. That is powerful. I'm forgiven. I'm graced. I'm justified. I'm made righteous in the eyes of God. And I'm, I'm blown away by this because I fail and fall short every single day. There's never been a day where I earned. If you let me in heaven and just said, here, we're going to let you in heaven for free, Mike. But you just, you're going to stay here based on your behavior. I would last three seconds. May, maybe. Maybe. It's like I can't get clean and I can't keep myself clean. I'm justified. I'm made righteous. It is grace. And oh, thank you, God. And I like it, it, every word so important. Being justified, it says in verse 24, freely. Freely, it says. We all know this word, right? I don't have to explain the word freely to you. It means without cost. Without cost. I don't have to throw coins into the coffers of the church. I don't have to crawl on my knees to some special holy shrine. It is free. I get my justification and I do nothing for it. Nothing in the category of works. I just believe. I just believe. Freely, it says, by his grace, though you don't deserve it, you have no qualifications, you're disqualified. That's what this word grace means. It's getting what you don't deserve. I like the acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. I think it's a beautiful way to put it. But this word grace implies something a little bit more than just getting something by grace. Because grace involves people, right? Like when a, when a tree bears fruit and you just walk up and take it, you, you wouldn't really call that getting it by grace. Grace is a personal term. People give people grace. Persons give persons grace. When God has grace on us, it not only involves giving you a free gift, it involves him loving you. So we're justified freely by his grace, not only his free his free gift but his free love his love upon us so it implies love and then as you keep reading it says being justified freely by his grace through the redemption through the redemption that is in christ jesus that redemption probably the most consistent uh, way to picture this word redemption is the idea of a slave who is purchased 
and then set free. Somebody pays the cost for the slave and then says, I bought you and now you're free. I, 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 I give you your freedom. That's the idea. It's redemption. It's being, I'm, I'm bought back. I'm bought back. And that's what God has done for me. I sold myself under sin when I chose to sin. And Christ came and he bought me back. He paid the price for what, for what I had done. He set me free. So being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, it's free, but it is only in Jesus. He is the only way. He's that Messiah. All the arrows point to him. He is, he is the one. This is exclusive because he's the only one who's ever bought you back. He's the only one who's ever made the way. As he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Some people complain about this. They don't like that Christianity is exclusive. Why is there only one way? These are the types of questions that, that remind me of children. You know? Well, why do I have to brush my teeth? It's like, you know, it's just, you're like, it's a, it's, a, it's, a chi- it's a childish question. Why is there only one way? Like, well, if there was another way, Jesus wouldn't have come. If you could get there on your own, he never would have come. As the, the scripture says, if, if, uh, if righteousness could come by the law, then Christ died in vain. What we should be out here preaching is, hey, do better and you'll make it. But instead, Christ came and he died for us. By all rights, I'm condemned. And to complain that there's a way is really silly. It's really silly when it comes down to it. It's like complaining for someone who has a terminal illness and, they, and the doctor says, here you go, I've got the cure. You have to take this pill. And you go, doctor, is there another way? And he goes, no, no, you just take this pill. Well, what do you mean? I do? It's free. I'll give it to you for free. All you do is take the pill, you're fine. But really, shouldn't there be another way? Are you an idiot? Like, are you, are you suicidal? Are you crazy? There's a way. You should be happy. Um, Acts 4.12, it, it drills this into us. Peter says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said he was the only way. Scripture forces us to see that we're the only, that he's the only way. Um, the apostles said that he's the only way. The teaching here is that in Romans is that the redemption, it comes in Christ. We all fall short. It just comes in Christ. He's the only way. Um, so let's, let's keep reading verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. That's a word every time, I mean, even as a pastor, as a teacher, I look up propitiation again and again, because it's one of those words where I'm like, wait, what was the thing? What was the meaning? Because it's just a word you never use in casual conversation. You're like, so the other day I was filling up my gas and uh, some propitiation happened. It was like, you just don't consider these types of things. The idea of propitiation, and there's theological debates on this term, but my understanding of it is that it's, the idea is paying a ransom to appease God. Paying a ransom, a price, uh, a sacrifice to appease God. Now, this bothers some people. That's why there's a debate about it. They, they're like, we don't really like the idea that you're saying God's angry. God's angry and he's going to judge people. And then Jesus sort of like gets in between me and the angry God. So God's mad at me. So God, and this is the way the atheists tend to put it. Uh, the strongest thing atheism ever does is restate Christianity in mean, sarcastic, cruel terms. Um, rather than dealing with what we really believe, they, they restate it in mean terms. So they say something like, God is so mad at me that God sends himself to kill himself, to die for us, to please himself, to appease himself because he was mad at us. And they're like, ha see, 
your religion's stupid. And I'm like, no, your, your rendition of my religion is stupid. But <laughs> that's really not how we would put it. That's not quite what we believe. It's not exactly accurate, is it? But there is a fact that God is angry. I know there's many people teaching out there, God's not mad at you. I, my view of this is, well, he is mad at you, but he also loves you. That it's a little bit more complicated than that. If you've had children, you can understand the idea that God might be angry with us, yet still love us. And still want us to be saved and want us to be redeemed. But oh yeah, he's upset. And he's a holy and righteous God. He's not acting in anger the way humans do. Like, I'm just mad for no reason or you, you bothered me. He's upset for true, good, honest, right reasons. There is wrath. And this is really what Romans has driven in. It showed the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Christ is the only way out of this because he is our propitiation. God's wrath is against sin and justice. The fact that he's a good judge demands that he'll judge us. It demands that there is payment for this sin. It would actually be unrighteous if God were to simply ignore sin. I met one time a lady who told me that she had a vision from God where God said, there is no judgment. There's only love. And I was like, God did not say that. And so she went out and she was doing what she thought of as missionary work. And she was out telling native peoples that not that they needed Jesus, but they don't need anything. God loves you. You're fine. You're absolutely fine. And this is doing the work of the false prophet. The false prophet doesn't come out there and beat on your door and tell you what a horrible person you are. They come on knock on your door. They go, hey, I just want you to know you're doing fine. Don't change nothing. You know, that's the false prophets always pleasing people, appeasing people, saying nice things to people. That's now you can say nice things to people and be legitimate. But at some point you got to confront sin and realize that Jesus is the only way. It would be unrighteous if God ignored sin. So for us to ignore the wrath of God would be wrong. It ignores everything that Paul wrote so far. Propitiation really is this idea of God's wrath against sin. But he loves us so much that though he must demonstrate his righteousness, he must do the judge, the right judge thing. He lets that fall upon Christ instead of on us. And he stands as the, as the propitiation for us. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So whom God set forth as propitiation by his blood... And that, so it was that it was his death by his blood. Now to a Jew, this makes total sense, right? Blood sacrifice, you know, like sprinkling and all that. It, it's all sort of ingrained. You've been trained to understand the sacrifice of Christ by the Old Testament sacrifices. It just clicks because all those arrows are pointing to Jesus. And then it says this through faith. Again, we're getting this idea that it's through faith. Just in case you forgot. <laughs> it's by faith. It's by grace. You just believe. You just trust. You just put your hope and trust in Christ. And then... Reading on, there's a very interesting phrase. It says, to demonstrate his righteousness. To demonstrate his righteousness. That the propitiation that Jesus was, was a demonstration of God's righteousness. God's wrath poured out on Christ was to show that he really is righteous and he's serious about sin. That demonstrated his righteousness. In a sense, the flood demonstrated God's righteousness. Sodom and Gomorrah demonstrated God's righteousness. And Christ's death demonstrated God's righteousness. It showed that he really is righteous. It says, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
So um, in the earlier part, we see God's righteousness revealed as accessible through Christ. But now we're seeing God's righteousness demonstrated or shown to us. That's what righteousness looks like. It looks like me also judging sin. And there we go. We see Christ demonstrating righteousness from one end, being the perfect righteous one. God demonstrating his righteousness to the Father by judging, by, by pouring out wrath um, on our sin onto Christ. So, um, as we read on, we'll read this again. It says, because in his forbearance, that, that, that would be God's long-suffering or his, his patience, God has passed, had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Or, to put it this way, his passing over of those sins, that was a delay that kept his righteousness from being revealed. Because what if God judged you the second you sinned? This would be bad for most of us. <laughs> It would be bad. So God has patience. He has patience. He has patience. Some take his patience as him not really being righteous. Oh, he won't judge at all. He's not really righteous in that sense. But he's passing over. He's passing over. He's forbearing. And then on Christ, he unloaded the wrath that we might be forgiven. In other words, every sin a man commits that he is not yet judged for, that issue is unresolved. And like you said earlier in Romans, they're storing up wrath. Now that wrath is poured out on Christ or the person will take it one or the other. It creates all this tension, this tension of sin uh, between man and God. I've sinned and I, I have to resolve this issue because God is a just judge. He has to judge me and it will either be resolved through Jesus or through final judgment. It's one or the other. So that's the why. That's why God demonstrated his righteousness. So then here's the question is how did he demonstrate his righteousness? Um, through Christ, again, both by Jesus being perfect and by Jesus experiencing God's judgment, the, the wrath of God being revealed through that. So what was the end? This is what I love. End of verse 26. This is such a powerful, powerful phrase. That he, God, might be, the ju be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me read that again. That he might be just, righteous, and the justifier of of the one who has faith in Jesus. How could a righteous God allow any sinner into heaven? He can't be just letting me and, and, and let me into heaven. But through Christ, he can be righteous, he can judge sin, and yet take the sinner, cleanse them, make them righteous, and bring them into heaven. It, it, it fulfills the tension. It deals with it. In fact, turn to Psalm 85.10. This is one of the most beautiful verses in the Psalms to me. And I think it capsulates the gospel how we were saved. Psalm 8510, this is how God is just and the justifier. He remains righteous as well as making us righteous, which would seem irreconcilable without Christ. Psalm 8510, it says, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. I think that's the cross. I think that mercy and truth, and righteousness, and peace. We see all these sort of things that seem like you couldn't coexist. How could God be righteous and merciful? How could God be truthful about my sin and yet give me peace? Jesus, that's the answer. Christ, he's a propitiation. He's the way. He's, he's how I get saved. So I just love that. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. It's in Christ. So what I want to do now is this. We, we just went, we plotted through phrase by phrase, thought by thought. Hopefully, 
This passage, Romans 3, 21 through 26, it makes a lot more sense now. I want to read it again. And I want you to read it again, having all that sort of packed into your brains. Because I know that you soak up every word. And you store it all. And, and it never goes away. So, Romans three twenty one it says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And to demonstrate at the present, excuse me, read verse 27. We're going to keep reading on. Um, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. So Paul then, he's going to say, let's apply this, all these beautiful truths. Here's the point. You have nothing to boast about dreadfully lost sinner saved by the grace of Christ through only Jesus. All you did was believe. So can you boast? No, you cannot boast. Now this is the application he brings in Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I have nothing to boast of. This is, this is the humility of a Christian. It should be, right? I have, there's nothing I boast about. I boast in Christ. I boast in God. I boast in him alone. All of, my, all of my bragging is all about Jesus and what he did for me. Ask me about me and I'll just tell you how I'm a loser. And he saved me. And you might laugh, but I'm like, oh, I, not only do I mean it, but I mean it a lot more than you probably think I do. Because I know me. And I know this heart. And I know my sins and I know my failures and I am just grateful that I fall broken like, like with the bronze serpent bit with the poison of sin of my own failings. I'm dying on the ground and I just look to Christ on the cross and I am saved. And he gets all the credit and all the glory. I only boast in God. Now think about how this applies. You have nothing to offer. You have nothing to boast of. So that means if you have Jesus, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. If you were a completely lost sinner who was saved completely by the grace of God, doing nothing to earn your salvation, but just turning yourself to Christ in faith, then what do you have to fear now as a Christian? Hebrews 11.25, it says this about Jesus. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Are you going to come to God through Christ? Then God is able to save you. Christ is to the uttermost. Are you barely saved or are you saved to the uttermost? Are you barely good enough to get to heaven or are you completely not at all and you're given righteousness from Christ? When you understand the deeper teachings of the theology that we're getting into here in Romans, you are given boldness. Not in you, not boasting in you, but boasting in Christ. He's my savior, man. He paid for me. I am 
forgiven in Christ. As a young believer, I struggled with failure and then feeling like, am I even still saved? Am I really okay? Can I walk with God still? Because I lacked theology. I lacked an understanding of the word of God. And the more I studied the word of God, the more my heart became secure in Christ. And it did not encourage me to go sin more. I sinned less. The more I understood the word of God, also the more I walk in, in, in goodness and in things God calls me to. But it gave me courage and it gave me strength. Now, some people, you get saved and you're like, I never for one second doubted it. But that's not true for all of us. <laughs> and there are times where especially for those of us who maybe don't fully understand the gospel and how we get saved. We believe it, but we don't fully grasp it all. You know, we're, we're still young and weak in the faith. Or we struggle. And I go, man, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I feel like... Feel like I, I feel like I can't go to him. I feel like I can't be confident in him. And for you, I'd say what you need to do is just study the Bible. Just study the Bible, man. Just read into it and really take for take at face value the things that we read in the scripture. We conclude, it says in verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the from the deeds of the law. But as a Christian, sometimes you can think, oh, I got saved by faith. But I'm trying to then do works after that to sort of maintain or keep myself going in God. This is not the purpose of works. To a Christian, every deed and work you do is meant to be an act of love and gratitude to God. You're not earning anything. And if you did earn it, what would you do? You would boast. You would boast. But because you know you don't earn it, because you know it's God's grace poured out, then you know that you can just be washed and clean and stand before God and say, God, I, I offer nothing. I know what I deserve and it's not good. But by the grace of Christ, I'm forgiven. Um, I hope that we see this. When we let Romans 1 through 3 push us into the corner of saying, I am a lost sinner who totally falls short of God's glory, then we let it bring us out of the corner into the righteousness of Christ that comes through imputation, right? Through his propitiation, through justification upon us where it's like I am washed and clean and given God's righteousness. I'm not just given a clean slate and I have to keep it clean. No, I am given God's righteousness. And I am now reaching the glory of God because it's his glory he put upon me. And that's it. It's always, always grace. It starts with grace, ends with grace, stays on grace. Let's pray. Father God, we love you for the grace that you have offered us. The justification we receive through Jesus Christ, who is our propitiation, who, who sacrificially gave and died because you could then be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, we put our faith and trust in Christ. We offer nothing, nothing of ourselves. We believe in Jesus and that's it. And that is our, our soul salvation. And we boast in only you. So may we also, Lord, have confidence in our Savior. That we could lift up holy hands. Holy with your holiness, not our own. Imputed, Lord. Given to us. Freely from you. God, we love you. We are so grateful that you save wretched sinners. Remind us of our state of wretchedness. So we can stay humble, so we can then live out love to God, our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.